Hi and welcome back to Chris Dyer's Creative Friends, the super awesome podcast show where me, your artist friend Chris Dyer, talks and has awesome conversations with all his very creative friends. So today uh, I will have Daniel Pinchbeck as my guest. Uh, he is coming over to Denver to write a book with me, which is crazy. Um, you know, he is part of the Galactic Gang NFT community and we want to write a novel. So we're going to have some great conversations together and come up with a great story for, for our series. But So if you don't know who Daniel Pinchbeck is, he's a writer of many very interesting books, a philosopher, activist, psychonaut, and just a very smart, interesting person. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversations. Blessings! Daniel? I'm good. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for uh, being here in Denver these days yeah. and for sitting here in uh, my backyard to answer uh, these questions. Um, thanks for being part of the Galactic Gang yeah. and for helping with this novel that you know, you'll know you be writing. Yeah. Super stoked. Um, so you are originally from New York, correct? That's true. You lived there all your life? Nice. Uh, how is it today compared to back when you were a kid or even a teenager? How's it changed in all these decades? Uh, wow, that's a deep question. I mean, you know, so I'm like in my 50s, so I can remember like the early 70s or whatever. I mean, um, you know, I remember like the whole taxi driver stage when it was really decrepit. And grimy. Like, you know, grimy, drugs Dangerous. Everywhere. Dangerous. I remember... My dad was an artist uh, in Soho, um, so I remember the early days of Soho when there wasn't like any galleries even, and the galleries came, and it was super chic, and then it became like the fashion area. So yeah, it's just, you know, um, what I guess I feel at this point is um, it's still an amazing place, and you might fall in love with like a bookstore or a gallery or something, and it moves away, but then you think that that's the city's going down, but then something else pops back up. And right now, it feels like a really amazing time. I mean, post-pandemic, it feels like uh, there's a lot of energy there. And um, I don't know, just... Uh, Did a lot of people move out and new people move in? Apparently, in my neighborhood uh, in East Village, apparently uh, a lot of older people moved out, a lot of younger people moved in because the rent suddenly like shot down so people could get back in the neighborhood. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Hopefully more artistic people like yourself. Yeah. Nice. So tell me about your parents. Uh, you, you were yeah. telling me your mom uh, dated Jack Kerouac back in the on the road days. Yeah, my mother was uh, when she was 21. Uh, she was going out with Jack Kerouac, who was in his um, you know a bit older, and she was with him when he published On the Road, mm -hmm. uh, which was like a generation defining book. I'm actually I find that a lot of young you know young people these days have never even really read the Beats or heard that much about them. Really, that's crazy. But, but, huh? but On the Road, you know, was one of the books that helped kind of like create the 60s and the whole hippie movement and so on. And he'd been living, 
you know, kind of an unknown, you know, he'd written all these novels, he couldn't get them published for years, uh, he did a lot of drugs, he kind of damaged himself, I guess. Uh, That's before he became famous? Yeah, or? yeah, he published, he, he wrote on the road in like 49 and it didn't come out until 57, so it was like eight years. Oh, wow. And all these other books that couldn't get published. Um, it was before its time. Before its time. So when the book finally came out, she was with him and he got this rave review in the New York Times that changed his whole life. He became like the most famous writer of that time and she used to go with him to all these talk shows, but he was really psychologically unprepared for the fame. He was actually kind of a, a fragile person. Right. And so he would get massively drunk before getting on the shows and he would start raving at the talk show host that he was waiting for God to, to, to show him his face and stuff. Huh. And um, yeah, so that, and then she was a writer. She actually ended up writing a memoir called Minor Characters uh, about her experience growing up in that period and what it was like to be around like Ginsburg and Kerouac. Do you get to meet Kerouac or Ginsburg? Kerouac, I, I didn't get to meet, but I met Ginsburg. I knew uh, quite a bit when I was young. Wow. And um, used to have like lunch with him and I found him like a really inspirational person. Wow. You know? That he's, he was very inspirational for me and back in college days. His poems are very special and just such a unique character back in the what 50s right 60s i mean he was very famous in the 60s he became like um once the hippie movement yeah, i mean you know yeah you know like the beatles probably took their name from the beats like, i don't think a lot of people even realize how significant they were bob dylan was like definitely influenced a lot by ginsburg um yeah he was a great guy i really liked him nice and yeah. did all that influence uh kind of like inspire you to be a writer yourself or a artistic yeah, person yeah definitely i mean um My mother was more of a con like conventional novelist and, and, and memoirist, um, but um, kind of like how I got into the psychedelic thing was I worked in like mainstream magazines in New York as a journalist. Then I had kind of a spiritual crisis, and then I kind of remembered the beat heritage because they were all about like you needed to ex explore things for yourself and you needed to pursue, you know, personal discovery, personal liberation, you know, whatever consciousness. So, and they'd actually been among the first, like Burroughs was one of the first to take ayahuasca. Um, uh-huh. Then he got Ginsburg to do Ginsburg. was one of the early ones. What take, year like, is this? Uh, that was like 52. There's a book called The Yahe Letters. Uh, Burroughs went down because he was trying to cure himself from a heroin addiction. Wow. So he went down to, um, I guess, Peru. Uh, and he had like horrible experiences, but I think they very much inspired like how he ended up writing, like Naked Lunch and so on. Wow, very very interesting. And my dad was an abstract painter who never really um, became well known. He was kind of like an outsider artist. Um, but uh, yeah, I still love his work, and I still have like a ton of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you talk a lot about the importance of art in order to transform the world back to the positive. Uh, tell me the importance of art, because this is a podcast mostly about artists and stuff. Yeah. Um, tell me your points of views. Yeah, and I see myself as an artist, even if I write nonfiction mainly. I mean, um, well, I think art, um, you know, opens up imaginative possibilities for what humanity could be, uh, and it allows us to, th you know, think beyond maybe the limits, you know, of, of what we're what we have in terms of economic systems, political systems, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Beautiful. How many books have you written, and if can you go over like very briefly what each book is kind of yeah. like about? Uh, I mean, I've, now I've written a, little, a bunch of like shorter books that I self-published on Amazon recently. So that's been like an experiment, like 70 or 80 page books. But for me, there was like the first three were Breaking Open the Head that came out in 2002, which was about uh, psychedelic shamanism. And I went to like Africa, I went through the uh, Bwiti initiation in Gabon. I went to the Amazon to take ayahuasca with the Sequoia. 
I visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico. I wrote about like the whole you know Burning Man uh, cultural you know world. Um, and at that time, yeah, the book kind of you know reached the mainstream. Probably helped change the you know kind of um, cultural discussion around around psychedelics, which really. Like in, when I in the '90s in New York, like people just laughed at psychedelics. Like the New York Times ridiculed them, mm-hmm. were, and also they were very taboo. Like when the book was published, I you know used to be like scared that I was getting like you know stopped on airport airplanes or you know if I tried to come back into the country or whatever. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, over the time to see the embracing of psychedelics, you know, by by the culture, by the mainstream culture. And my second book was kind of like my most successful book. It was 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Mm-hmm. And that book was looking at the prophecies of different cultures around the world, including like the you know, Mesoamerican cultures, like the Maya and the Aztecs, the Hopi in North America, and then also um, you know, kind of like the apocalypse tradition in, in Western culture, like you know, Jewish, Christian, Islam. Uh, Carl Jung was a big part of it. And, book was yeah it was really I mean I, I through the that was psych- a bestseller right yeah through, through the psychedelic work I'd had a lot of um, I guess paranormal psychic uh, phenomena that um, I was at first I started as like a skeptic and a materialist so <laughs> Sorry, that happens, I'll just snap this tree out um, <laughs> there you go <laughs> um, yeah so that was very surprising so I tried to understand you know if if, it, if the materialist worldview was inaccurate then, you know, how could we, like, logically look at the world? And, and so I, you know, looked at people like Carl Jung and scientists like Amit Goswami um, and Dean Radin and so on, people who talk, you know, explore psychic phenomena and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are your two main books, and then you also... Uh, the third one was called How Soon Is Now. That, that came out... So then I started a company and a non-profit um, and um, felt that it wasn't enough to be a writer because I was very concerned that... Yeah, that 2012 was going to be like a big transformation. That we only had, I felt like we only had a short amount of time, looking at what was happening like ecologically and also like politically, to kind of like incite some larger movements, you know, of, of change. Um, so it took me 10 years to finish the third book, which was How Soon Is Now. Wow. And that that was more of an effort to um, kind of starting from the sort of you know psychedelic experience of, of deconditioning and deprogramming to kind of rethink how you know like we could use like social systems and economic system technologies to um you know have a more regenerative society and you know something because at the moment yeah we're still really suffering from this ongoing ecological emergency and we haven't resolved you know the military and geopolitical political stuff and i feel there, there needed to be more generalists who just think through stuff on like a systems level mm-hmm. you know and Afterlife is your latest book? Yes, that's one of the more short books that I self-published. I also wrote a, a book that came out a few years ago called When Plants Dream oh, wow. with uh, my, my friend Sophia Rockland, who's an anthropologist. And that was kind of, it's almost like a biography of ayahuasca. It was like a history of the plant and what, what we can know about its uses and what we're learning about it in terms of like medicine and science and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's been a few books since then. One was called The Occult Control System, which you would probably like, where I was looking at like you know, extraterrestrials, UFOs, uh, ideas around, um, in the 2012 book, I wrote a lot about the crop circles that appear in fields in England, uh-huh. uh, which I think there are, you know, many good reasons, having spent time over there during that phenomenon, to think that, you know, maybe it wasn't just made by humans. Maybe there was some other energy kind of interacting with us in a way. Yeah, it's alien graffiti. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, it's messaging or something. 
Nice. Um, so yeah, then most recently this book Afterlife, uh, which was kind of looking at the, there's actually a lot of evidence for this possibility that, um, you know, death is not the end of everything. I mean, there's all these um, reports of children who spontaneously remember their past lives, um, near-death experience where people are able to remember like everything around them, uh, or and um, mediumship uh, is really extraordinary. So um, yes, I was trying to put together a, a kind of a also kind of thinking through how could this be possible or what would it mean in terms of you know our understanding of the nature of reality. Right. Um, so all of these topics are generally not part of the mainstream narrative or conversation. Do you meet a lot of resistance from it or did you used to re receive more resistance before and now it's being more accepted and maybe it's more being highlighted and valued? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I would say a lot of resistance. I mean, um, you know, I feel kind of like exiled, you know, um, you know, canceled a bit also, you know, in, you know something, but in some ways, but I mean, um, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I feel, I, yeah, I kind of feel like a, a sadness because I feel like, you know, our culture would, would be benefit, you know, be benefited if we could explore a lot of these topics more seriously. And it still kind of surprises me because they were, you know, a lot of these topics were of like the greatest concern for other cultures. Like, you know, you know, Mesoamerican cultures were obviously completely interested in, you know, the psychic realms and shamanism and, you know, exploration of other dimensions. I mean, you see it in their art, you know, just in some ways similar to, to, to what you do. Uh, you know, Egypt and other cultures had a tremendous influence, interest in like the afterlife and how to prepare for it and what that meant or, or Tibetan Buddhism or something. But, you know, Western secular culture still can't really go there. And it's kind of it's kind of stuck in, in you know, other other topics. Really? Know? Is it not opening up a little bit its mind, like at least on psychedelics? Well, psychedelics for sure. But I mean, I'm like kind of like... Um, feel that the way that the psychedelics are now being pulled into like the business and the capitalist uh, thing, it's very complicated and, and it's, you know, concerns me in some ways because they're kind of like domesticating right. uh, the experience. They're making it very focused on the two areas of like, you know, healing, you know, therapy, and then, you know, microdosing for creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and those are both amazing, but, you know, I, I think um, there's even deeper levels to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Totally. Yeah. What's the uh, medicine that you work with the most with? So yeah, I mean, I've taken a break for a few years. I kind of wanted to just, you know, figure myself out a little bit separate from psychedelics because for, for a long time that was like, you know, such a part of my life. But uh, I would say ayahuasca has been the most profound. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I did iboga twice. The, the, the first journey in Africa is what's just written about in the first book. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one was you know, also really incredible, but you know, not something one would probably do a lot. You know? Right. Um, I've never done iboga, but like, how would you compare ayahuasca and iboga? Iboga is a lot longer lasting. It's like 20, 25 hours. Wow. And uh, it has Sounds a number of very specific phases. It is pretty exhausting. Uh, but it's also very, my experience of it was like very, the first time, very psychoanalytical. Like it like took you back to your early childhood. And you definitely felt, as you sometimes feel with ayahuasca, there's like a guiding energy or being associated to it, which seems, you know, kind of masculine, whereas ayahuasca seems quite feminine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, an extraordinary, you know, tool. Beautiful. Yeah. <clears throat> so, 
something that we're working together is on the project of the Galactic Gang, which is an NFT series. And it's, we're coming on with our own myths and stories to reflect on the journey or the hero's journey of humanity. Um, what's the importance of myths for humanity in order to learn about itself and grow? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, human beings need myths in order to live. And, um, um, you know, even kind of materialism is, is a myth of matter. It's this idea that uh, only, the only thing that matters is what can be quantified or known in that sense. Um, you know, uh, the Big Bang is a, is a myth. I mean, you know, it, it may be the case, but then scientists keep finding maybe it's not the case or whatever. So, um, you know, I think having, you know, new myths gives us like new possibilities for, you know, how we can live and, and what we can think about and how we can dream and so on. Right. The understanding of who we are in this process hopefully empowers us more yeah. to become the hero of the story we live at least in our personal lives but yeah hopefully gives us hope that we can succeed in the end and we're not defeated for doom and gloom yeah i mean i think it's it's just super fun i mean the characters are super fun and they kind of called out to me when i you know began to look at them and look at your art of like you know what would be like a, a story or a narrative or or a, you know myth, yeah myth myth mytholo mythological kind of world in which you know these beings were embedded and what kind of conflicts were they having or what was their mission or whatever yeah yeah well i'm excited for this thing we're, we're creating together so nfts and crypto are something new and in your uh newsletter you seem to explore a little bit can you tell me a little bit of your points of views or you know sure i mean this? um it's complicated i mean you know i think it's you know like many things it's like you know good and bad i mean I'm, what i what i'm what i'm loving about it is it seems to be opening up some new creative spaces um and you know this idea that you know, the sort of NFTs instantly create like this community and then you can explore. I mean, it's kind of like a new kind of like unification of like, you know, commerce, community, art, um, technology, technology, metaverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have also looked really closely at some of the, the criticisms of the whole thing. Like there's a famous video or it's become very famous called The Line Goes Up, mm -hmm. where he really argues that... Um, you know, that they're really, you know, more kind of like PR for this crypto industry and that, you know, this negative view would be that the crypto industry is, is really more of a kind of like a, you know, something like a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme where they have to keep bringing more people in because there's no like underlying, you know, real value. But um, isn't it the same as normal money or the central reserve, uh, you know, currency? I can't really say that I think that's the case. And I know that argument. I mean, even if you don't like the U.S. And, you know, and definitely the financial system, as we saw in like, you know, 2008, is like kind of corrupt. But uh, still, the, you know, the, the, the fiat currency is backed by, you know, like a sort of legacy of like, you know, everything that the U.S. has built. Schools, institutions, institutions, uh, legal code, highways. Um, you know. well, it's a big agreement we've all made as a society, but it's not backed by gold anymore. So it's just kind of like faith believed in a way. Well, it's still backed by every, you know, everything that the society is. I mean, you know, including its military, but it's, you know, history, you know, centuries of, of legal uh, dispute and uh, centuries of governance and territory. I mean, there's still a lot of real stuff, you know, that, that backs a national currency, um, mm -hmm. whereas but, you can't really say that for Bitcoin, you know. But like, it seems like they can just print it whatever they want and give it to themselves. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm not, you know, like, um, as I said, I don't think that the, you know, to say that the current system, you know, is really problematic and corrupt. I mean, I totally agree with that. But, it, and, and, I, and, I, and I love that um, the crypto world shows us that we could define, you know, other ways of creating and trading value. But it's also like, I'm a little bit concerned. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a philosopher and a critic. So it's like, things concern me, for instance, like, um, um, you know, we saw with, with the web 2.0, we thought it was going to be liberation and Google was like, you know, uh, do no evil and, you know, Facebook was make the world, you know, more open and connected. Mm -hmm. And then over time, these very powerful tools ended up maybe having some negative effects in terms of like uh, surveillance and now censorship. And well, that's very complicated. So, you know, and that, that was all about media and communications. I mean, and with crypto, it's kind of the, um, we're doing the same thing for, money that we did for um, media, you know, mm -hmm. and um, if it's, you know, not handled very carefully, what, what seems, you know, like promise or liberation might actually become, you know, even even deeper mechanisms of control, you know, because, you know, for instance, with crypto, like if they create, you know, central bank issued digital currencies, it'll all be like completely trackable. So every transaction, you know, and, you know, they'll be able to sort of like turn your money off and on, you know, like they just did in Canada with those, with the, the trucker protests. Right, but they're already easier. doing it with normal money. Like the hope is that with crypto, they couldn't do that because it's decentralized and more in the hands of the people, right? Yeah, it's just, I mean, as I said, it's like, I completely hope that it turns out to be an amazing thing. I mean, I tend to be a little bit critical. And also I remember the promises of previous tech revolutions where everybody like, this is going to be the great, you know, opening that's going to allow yeah. for all this liberation, but that actually the, you know, the corporations and, and the governments, you know, somehow learn to benefit. And, and with this, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm hopeful, but also I, I see a lot of, a lot of potential threats. Right. Well, it seems like these kinds of technologies always start by like the small people at the bottom with good intentions, but right. then as they grow, money comes in, they get corrupted and coerced, and it seems like governments and corporations take over and they kind of ruin it by yeah. making yeah. it all about money and control. So, I mean, so for instance, like a critique of the whole smart contract thing is, okay, so at the moment, like, you know, you lease an apartment and then let's say you lose your job, so you can't pay your rent. You know, generally you have quite a lot of recourse, like the landlord can't just evict you, you know, the next day you know, it could take months or maybe you'll go to the landlord and say, hey, can you give, just give me a few months off, you know, until I figure this out or mm -hmm. reduce the rent or something. You know, with smart contracts, it could be more, you know, kind of technocratic where, okay, like it's 1201 on January 1st, you, you didn't pay the rent. So we lock your doors and a drone turns up at your window and you're out, you know. Right. So, you, it, this, you know, the, there's, a, there's a reason that there's ambiguity in, in, in legal code, you know, in the legal system that actually mm -hmm. works for the benefit sometimes of people. And it's possible that, that smart contracts will actually remove a kind of protective layer that, that, that you know, make, makes society at least somewhat less unjust. You know? Right, a little bit of wiggle room. Um, so, you know, these governments and corporations come and kind of like ruin it, like something that potentially could be good for us you know, are we kind of screwed as long as the people in control have these bad intentions or, or maybe not bad intentions, but just like are all about the money and the control? Like, you know, how do we get rid of that? And how do, you know, to me, it seems like government, 
always kind of fucks it up for the people. Like, how, what's the option? You know, like, how can we? Yeah, well, I'm, I think find that, I mean, I'm not. I mean, maybe it's because I've gotten older or something. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, when I wrote How Soon Is Now, like, I was really envisioning, and I still do, kind of like more of a um, participatory, like you know, particularly with all the climate stuff. I mean, I think eventually we're going to have more like the importance of like local and bioregional centers are going to grow mm -hmm. and the hopefully the importance of these large you know federal governments are is going to shrink just because they're not going to be able to handle all the chaos and then, and then so you know and i do see a lot of my friends you know trying to build or building you know kind of regenerative communities where they're making more of their own food and, and all that kind of stuff um so it may go more in that direction but I, but i but i also i guess i do feel that you know I mean, government has been like a negotiated battle, right? Like, I mean, um, you know, the 18th century, we freed ourselves from aristocracy and we created like systems that gave people more participation. And then, you know, there was like, you know, labor unions and negotiations and like, you know, fighting over and over again. It's like, you know, I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned of the libertarian critique, uh, uh, you know, which is, you know, a lot of the Bitcoin people are very libertarian, that we just, you know, do away of, with governments and that'll be better. I'm, I'm afraid that might end up serving even worse forms of autocracy or authoritarianism. Like mafias or something? Mafias, sure. Or, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, smaller government or like government for more, you know, localized and not so general because then you're more connected to the people who are close to you and you're... Yeah, I mean, what we would really need would be more like strengthens of, strengthening of like civil society, you know, outside of governments and companies. That's something that used to exist in like the 19th century. That's kind of what I, what I was trying to do with this company, Evolver, would be like, you know, if you had like local people coming together to decide for themselves the type of world that they want uh, and the type of, you know, community that they want, you know, that, 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 that would probably be, you know, better in, in some ways. Right. Well, all that sounds very logical to me, but it seems like the world's going the opposite direction, more generalized global rulers, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, I mean, that's why I freaked out, you know, back in 2007. And instead of like, you know, pursuing kind of the, the literary career I had, I was like, how do we, you know, what, could, what kind of systems do we create to, you know, kind of elevate people power, people's capacity for mm -hmm. taking charge. But yeah, I mean, it looks grim. I mean, it does. It, it's, um, you know, when we haven't, we're not solving the environmental stuff and we have, you know, a, a big shift towards more authoritarian and autocratic regimes who are able to use a lot of this technology like very, very effectively um, at this point, you know, but maybe it'll turn around. We, you know, somebody just introduced me to something called Briar. Uh -huh. which is like, I haven't even tried it yet, but it's like a messaging app that's totally based on the mesh network. So it basically does something like, you know, Facebook or Telegram, but it doesn't even need the centralized internet. It's all like peer to peer, mm -hmm. you know? So I think there could be, you know, technological jumps that would allow us to kind of like, you know, make, make social change, positive social change also. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope that us, the people keep on, you know, discovering and creating technologies that benefit, benefit us to have like free conversations without censorship yeah. or too much control. So what is your point of view about the World Economic Forum, like Carl Schwab's movement in Switzerland, I believe? Yeah. Yeah. Seems from the outside, 
that it's well-intentioned, it's about the environment, but it also seems like very about control, digital IDs, some kind of communism where like people don't own anything anymore right. and government Except owns it. When they say you, you won't own anything, then the question is, why isn't it we don't own anything? It's the you. They're pointing at us and they're saying they're still going to own everything. Yeah. Right. So that's where I'm like, hell no. Like I worked really hard to, you know, buy my apartment yeah. and, and my books and records. And, you know, as I don't want to be materialistic, but I still want to enjoy these things that make me happy. Yeah. So what's your point of view about that whole movement and how they're infiltrating governments and, you know, uh, back in your old speeches yeah. you would even say like hey maybe it's good that we don't own anything because that's less resources that's better for the environment but now that it's closer to happening does it feel correct well i mean i mean i guess ideally i i mean you know i mean maybe an anarchist or socialist or something but I, I mean i you know feel there should be more commons more collectively owned resources i think wealth inequality is like one of the biggest problems in the top like you know, 0.1% or 1% use like the massive amounts of resources. I don't really see any reason why, you know, people need to have the resources to build $600 million private yachts, you know, like Bezos is doing, like Putin owns. So uh, I think, we, you know, a, a sane system would, would be a lot less wealth inequality, which also really values like, you know, certain types in our society, certain types of work is very much valued over other types of work. So if somebody's like a caretaker, like a nurse, or works with autistic kids, you know, they'll probably never be able to buy like an apartment or whatever. But if somebody manipulates, you know, third world currencies from, you know, very effectively, you know, from a finance trading company, you know, that person will be able to own like six houses all around the world. So I don't think that's a good system. Like our system is not, you know, supporting like the, the more humane values you know mm -hmm. so i don't know i don't know how we break that but um uh in terms of the world economic forum yeah i mean i i mean it's become kind of like a catchphrase right but essentially yeah you have a lot of corporations technocrats powerful people who you know they see themselves actually as i think as the noble ones who you know want to do good but they often want to do good in a way that increases their own power and control. And, you know, the, the big problem we have is that our technologies have accelerated so quickly, yet kind of like our, you know, moral, ethical development has not kept pace. That's kind of the problem. And, that, and so, you know, yeah, so when you have a technologies that allow to like surveillance for everybody or we, you know, now they're learning how kind of easy it is to control a lot of people's minds, right, through indoctrination, through propaganda and so on. Um, yeah, it's, it's, we're in a real battle zone right now, you know. Yeah. But it's not like I don't, you know, um, I think it's, we, we have to get past the stage of demonizing um, the other mm -hmm. uh, and recognize that, um, yeah, it's, it's like these systemic forces that, that, are, that are pushing us into different directions. Um, and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Know, I don't exactly know how we fix it. But um, yeah, so a lot of the ideas from the World Economic Forum seem pretty terrible to me too. Yeah, but it's uh, hard to stop that when they hold all the all the cards and they own the media, etc. I've also said like, hey, maybe they're like well-intentioned people with power, and they see that you know the world is getting overpopulated, and perhaps they have to do some things to regulate. The problem is they get to choose who who stays and who goes and who gets controlled and who doesn't, of course, they're always going to win. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do know well-intentioned people who have tremendous wealth, who go to things like the World Economic Forum, you know, and 
but I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, this, the whole system supports, um, you know, them wanting, you know, it's very naturally very human to kind of, if you have like privilege or power in any domain, you, you want to, you know, amplify it, right? Like, you know, you want to be a, you know, more successful artist, you know? Um, it's kind of like you know, the, the video game you're playing, you always want to do better and yeah. better. So, so there it's like somehow we have to switch from like an I to like a we focus and, um, you know, everything in our society kind of like, you know, w works against that. You know? mm -hmm. So Daniel, yeah. how soon is now? <laughs> <laughs> what, is the, what is from your personal opinion uh, the things we should do to try to rescue the world from its um, ecological catastrophes or, you know, everything? You've, you talked about it in that book. What's, what's some of the things you propose? I wrote the book a while back. I have to like, you know, go back to the database. I mean, um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, for, so for instance, like, you know, industrial agriculture is, is a huge problem and it's like depleting the world's topsoil. Mm -hmm. So, so for instance, we would need to go to more like back to organic farming, permaculture. There are a lot of practices on a smaller scale that replenish soil. There's like a really beautiful film called The Biggest Little Farm. Mm -hmm. uh, and these, you know, these, these Hollywood guys decided to leave like the media world and they bought a small farm that had been, you know, it was part of like a bigger industrial farm. So it was totally, you know, kind of um, barren kind of landscape. And then they applied all these principles and then you know, watched the film and they, they filmed it for six years. And by the end of the six years, like all the birds and the animals and the insects have all come back. The whole area is like super green again. So, you know, we would need to kind of do that on a global scale. And, but that also requires like, you know, cause it used to be that most people were farmers, right? Like a century or two ago. And then modernity came along and the idea was like, oh, being a farmer is boring and you don't get anywhere. So you're gonna move to the city and work in like marketing or get a job as like a cab driver or now an Uber driver, you know, it's more exciting. You know, that's, that's the opportunity, that's the future. Mm -hmm. So we'd almost need to reverse the logic of the system and we need to kind of, um, Resettle, retrain people and resettle them back, um, you know, so that they actually learned these techniques that would, you know, enhance soil and, and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. That's in one area. I mean, another area would be, um, I mean, ultimately we would have to redesign the economic system because one of the big problems we have is with the stock markets, you have uh, publicly traded companies that really have to only satisfy one prime directive, which is to maximize shareholder value, which is purely financial value. And um, that means that they're kind of like robots in a way that they can't, you know, this is, so basically anything that's an externality. So for instance, to protect an area or to, um, you know, not, you know. Ruin the environment. Yeah, exactly. Costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, to, 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 to sort of deal with their fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, they actually can't do any of that stuff. They have to do the stuff, you know, that's within the logic of the financial system, which is to exploit and, and maximize finance and so on. So, you know, we would need to like fundamentally, I think, change the logic of the financial system so that things that are now seen as externalities are integrated back into, into how businesses, you know, work and think. Mm-hmm. Um... Do you think it's uh, possible that people will go back from the cities back to the country? Or are we too many people right now? Um, you know, how do you observe overpopulation in general? Is the planet so big and bountiful that perhaps we could 
continue reproducing without destroying it? Is it like a matter of distribution that some have too much and some have too little? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I don't think that overpopulation is the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, wealth inequality and the fact that, you know, a small group of people, you know, use so much of the resources. Apparently top 1% use like 60% of the world's resources. Um, and you have populations, like look at like subsistence farmers in like Bangladesh or something. They're, they're like not contributing, they're not, you know, and all the things that we get to do, unfortunately, like use all the school equipment and fly around and buy cool sneakers and all that stuff. You know, if, if, you know, for those cultures that aren't doing any of that stuff, they're not really contributing to this ecological catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And I've visited also indigenous cultures, you know, in the Amazon or like the Kogi in Colombia, who um, also were like, you know, imbalanced with their environment, if anything, like they enhance the regenerative capacities of, of their environment through like practices that are like many, many centuries. So, you know, I think there's things that we could, you know, learn from those types of cultures. And um, yeah, I think we would, you know, probably want to taper off the world's population, you know, it, it, it but I, I don't think it has to be a catastrophic collapse. Um, but we would have to make very, very profound changes now. And we, you know, and also, you know, what we've learned over the last years is that uh, we, we can make profound changes. I mean, when the coronavirus happened, we were able to shut down, you know, all these different industries and all these different types of like office environments. And, you know, nobody starved to death. Like we were able to keep going. So, and actually a lot of people then realized that the jobs that they had had in the old system were actually kind of worthless and, you know, in terms of, or meaningless, let's say, and are now rethinking, recalibrating, you know, so there, there could be like, you know, a movement in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, what about energy? Um, you know, renewable versus fossil, uh, you know, that's going to end at some point. But then the, the argument to that is, say, like wind turbines take uh, resources, solar panels take a lot of chemicals and resources to build. Is that the best solution even? Um, what, what's your perspective on it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it looks like we would have to go through a, you know, planetary transition to kind of lower impact forms of energy, like renewable energy. And it, it looks like that stuff is getting better and better. I, I don't know if it allows us to do what we're doing now. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's like I read Bill Gates's book on climate change and, you know, he's looking at like carbon capture and storage and, you know, you know, all these high tech possibilities don't even really exist yet. The idea is that we have to keep this type of system going. I mean, you know, what if, you know, once again, it sounds a little socialistic, but, you know, people shared cars and resources rather than everybody having their own car, you know, people, you know, shared goods and services that became more of a norm in a way, you know, that we could, you know, reduce, you know, resource consumption, energy consumption, you know, I mean, there's very, I mean, as I was researching how soon is now, like really crazy things, like what, one of the reasons that the world is heating up is because of the loss of the albedo effect. Albino? Albedo. What's that? So it's like the Antarctica and the ice caps were very white and that mm -hmm. reflects the sun's rays back into space. Gotcha. So as they, as they get smaller due to climate change, that means that more of the sun's rays are absorbed in the earth. 
Is that a politically correct term <laughs> for the ice? Albedo? Albedo? Albino? Not albino. Not albino. A-L-B-E-D-O, I think. All right. But anyway, so if you painted all of the rooftops in urban areas white mm -hmm. or mandated garden, gar gardens, uh, that, would, that would compensate for the loss of the albedo effect. Mm -hmm. It would be a very harmless kind of thing to do. I mean, we also have like the you know, ocean acidification problem. The oceans have been absorbing a huge amount of the excess CO2, which is leading them to warm, and also it's affecting the, the life cycle of like the plankton, also like disintegrating the coral reefs. I mean, actually, the plankton produce like 60% of the oxygen that we breathe, mm. uh, whereas tropical forests produce like 20%. Mm -hmm. um, so theoretically, you could address acidification in the oceans if you um, stop fishing well no you could create huge uh, aquaculture kelp farms because okay. kelp uh, leaches out the co2 as it grows so if you i mean it would be a massive undertaking but if you converted six percent of the world's oceans to a giant kelp farm uh, that would you know it, and also kelp is like edible it can be used you know for you know soil or whatever that, that would be a way to reverse the um, acidification of the oceans. Wow. Yeah. Do uh, the powers that be know this? Are they doing something about it? I like, mean, is um, anybody on it? Or it's a, The problem is, I think that, and this is what I got into in How Soon Is Now, is that the, the you know, like the Bill Gates, that type of technology, or the world economic technocratic approach is to want to apply more high-tech, you know, futuristic, you know, hyper-technologies, whereas like a lot of the actual solutions are actually more low technology, but they require more human capital to move back in that direction, which means shifting the direction away from, you know, more, you know, technological evolution as like the answer, you know. So another example is like biochar. You know about biochar? I've heard of it, but please tell me. So it's like um, they discovered that um, the Amazon jungle was very much actually protected and stewarded by the indigenous people partially through this process called biochar, where they would um, kind of um, create a uh, slow burning, they would take the organic matter, they would burn it very, very slowly, and it would create this kind of carbon-rich tilth, which they would then redistribute on the, on the jungle soil. Because the, actually the Amazon soil is very thin and very fragile. And so they discovered that they can make commercial biochar, which you know produces heat and energy, and then ends up you know keeping the CO2 you know, in, 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 in the ground and then distributable, you know, in a way that helps soil, you know, but so yeah, stuff like that, which is kind of like these like low tech, but also like certain microorganisms that could have tremendous value, um, like, you know, anyway, anyway so um, yeah, those are some of the, those are some of the possible solutions. But I mean, one, one idea that I really uh, came to in How Soon Is Now, which I think is a very like psychedelic kind of an insight was like, um, you know, if we think about humanity and the Earth all together as like one giant sort of symbiotic organism, you know, like we are having this gigantic effect on everything that's happening on the planet right now, the hydrosphere, the geosphere, you know, the biodiversity web and so on. Um, so like if we're one giant organism, then what are the organs of this giant organism? I mean, it, you know, you could say nation states, but actually I think it's corporations. Like energy companies are like you know, the circulation system that's moving like the blood through the body or like media companies or like the eyes and the ears, which are taking in raw sense data and then converting it into the memes. Um, you know, so, 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 you know, this idea is that, you know, now, so, so in evolution, um, there's kind of a shift from kind of, um, 
aggression to symbiosis. You know, mm -hmm. immature ecosystems have a lot of like violence and destruction, but as ecosystems mature, they become more and more symbiotic. Like trees are like incredibly symbiotic organisms, right? Like they don't hardly destroy anything. They shelter like all these different types of life, like insects, you know, birds, you know, worms, snakes, and so on. So, you know, you could imagine that if there was a shift in the economic system, corporations could go from being kind of aggressors to actually being these sort of symbiotic organs of the human collective. Mm -hmm. you know? Seems like we would need a degree of maturity as, as a human race in order to go in that direction or need some kind of like spiritual evolution or flowering that it's my personal belief is happening, even though perhaps too slowly for what we need. But, you know, do you believe the change will happen in a spiritual sense? And are you an optimistic or pessimistic guy about if we're going to make it or not? Um, yeah, I guess, I'm, I mean, you know, I, th I think we will make it. I mean, um, uh, I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of calamity yeah, in the next decades. But, you know, crisis is also forces us to change. I mean, and we're already seeing, you know, we saw with the coronavirus, you know, in a way that, you know, seems threatening. But, you know, c companies and governments started to work together like really rapidly. Uh, we're seeing it with, you know, Russia, you know, all, the, all these companies and governments now like joining forces to try to deal with this threat. And so then, you know, the, the next threat on the horizon, you know, assuming that we don't end up in a nuclear war, uh, is the um, ecological emergency. And that's going to force like rapid adaptation and a lot of things that seem impossible now, like, oh, we'll never be able to make that change. You know, suddenly when we're forced to make the change, we might find that we can change things so quickly on so many levels. Um, but do you think the governments and these corporations that are tied into it actually have those good intentions of healing a virus, helping with a war, helping with the environmental catastrophe, or are they just using these as excuses to continue to control the people and do as they want? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both in a way, some of both. I mean, um, you know, it's hard to generalize, but I mean, there's a lot of people in a government or corporation and, you know, I mean, Obviously, like if we look in the U.S., like you know the you know the right wing, the Republicans seem to have really lost their minds and got into like a delusionary state. Um, you know, as have some of the Democrats and so on. So, you know, but um, you know, I mean, I think it's you know when crisis happens, people have to deal and they have to adapt to the to the reality, the new reality of, of the world. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well. I hope that some of them in power have good intentions to help heal and help with these problems while not totally fucking over the, the small man in the process of it. So let's talk about aliens. Uh, what's your belief about aliens as somebody who researches metaphysical realms and psychedelics and afterlife and all this stuff? Uh, what's our relationship with aliens? Are they different kinds? Uh, what's their objectives? What's their communication with us? What, what, what have you learned? Yeah, I mean, um, hmm. I don't, I've stopped kind of having beliefs around it. I mean, I mean, you know, as I said, when I wrote this book, 2012, there's like 100 pages in the book about these, these uh, patterns, the, the crop circles that appear in uh, mainly in England and southern England. They're not as, not as many as appear anymore, and they're not quite as amazing as they were, but 2000, you know, 1999, 2000. One, two thousand three, two thousand five. They were like unbelievable, mm -hmm. and um, um, yeah. I mean, I researched it. I talked to you know 
artists who claim to be responsible for the phenomenon, but I also talked to like physicists who'd written peer-reviewed science papers about kind of how the changes were, you know, the, the plants were molecularly altered in these formations. And, um, you know, land surveyors and, you know, designers and so on who basically argued that, you know, in, in the, the amount of time that these things appeared, there, were, there was no way that a bunch of humans had done them to this level of perfection. And then I went into many of them and sometimes would have kind of like um, psychic experiences or incredible synchronicities or whatever. Um, so I, I definitely think that there are levels of, um, you know, different types of whatever you want to call them, interdimensional beings. Some people think that maybe the crop circles are made by like future us, you know, in a way, coming back through time. Um, mm -hmm. Then there's like the, you know, really, you know, super bizarre phenomena of like the gray aliens and all these kind of negative, manipulative uh, abductions, which I also haven't heard as much about recently. I don't know if it's, people are just not reporting it anymore, if it's kind of being backburnered. But it seems like there's like a process of disclosure these days, like, uh, you know, the United States, uh, Pentagon are releasing all these videos of UFOs or I don't know. Yeah, what but the it still remains it. kind of maddeningly insufficient. And it always seems like it gets to a certain point, like you think there's going to be a huge breakthrough and then it sort of closes back down again. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, I think we were talking about like Nassim Haramein uh, mm -hmm. last night. And, you know, he's been, you know, he, he's really fascinating. He believes that you know, there is the potential to draw, you know, an infinite source of, like, free energy from the underlying structure of the vacuum. Right. And he believes that earlier civilizations who maybe were partnered with extraterrestrials had access to this technology and it was utilized by, like, Egypt, that maybe it ended up being the Ark of the Covenant, because in the Bible they describe things that sound like an anti-gravity device, like Moses may have used the, you know, Ark of the Covenant to part the Red Sea, so it was like some kind of like free energy technology that was extremely powerful. Um, so, um, so that, but then why don't we have it now? You know, and it could be that it's being, you know, people know about it, it's being suppressed, or, or somehow it may be that, um, you know, there needs to be some tipping point of consciousness. Like we actually, because in, in the um, Bible, for instance, if somebody tries to use the Ark of the Covenant and they don't, they're not at a certain level of like initiation or awareness, it'll just burn them up and they'll die. You know? mm -hmm. So, so it, it might be kind of the same thing with the, the ETs and the UFOs and all this stuff. It's like it, 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 it can't have any coherence as long as we're still trapped in kind of this old structure of consciousness. And even, you know, people who feel that they've maybe gotten beyond it, maybe they haven't quite yet. You know, there's still, there's still, it's, it's, it's too, it's too much the, uh, the, the, you know, the main, the mainframe. Yeah, we're not there yet. Maybe it's a thing of frequency, you know? We can't see the aliens in a physical way because they've surpassed that frequency. And the technologies are, you know, would burn us because it's a higher octave of, you know, what, where we're at right now. And hopefully we do evolve and get to a higher frequency yeah. and, you know, can access free energy and talk to the aliens and the Mayans. Yeah, and, and then also, I mean, you know, there's the sense that, you know, many of us have when, you know, we work with the entheogenic plants, that there are other forms of consciousness that kind of exist in a kind of super sensible way um, that, um, you know, are ready to communicate with us uh, when we are in the right receptive mode. 
Mm-hmm. Totally. So I feel yeah. like we need like an, we should have like an embassy, you know, for trying to communicate with all these different plants, like the ones that you talked about, the diet, the diet plants, and the, mm-hmm. the dolphins, the cetaceans, you know, who also seem to have, um, you know, a tremendous level of awareness, you know, in some ways, you know, beneath us, but in other ways, maybe far advanced of what we can even imagine, you know. Totally. So you got to keep on doing the work, meditate, and try to listen to what's invisible to us right now. So you're an interviewer too, right? Like, yeah. uh, do you got your own podcast or where do pe- you interview people? I haven't really been doing it much lately. I've been more like just um, reading and thinking for a while. Um, Who have you interviewed in the past and what's some interesting things you've learned from them? Have I interested in the past? Um, it's been a while. I haven't really been doing interviews as much. Well, the last one was uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Ah, yes. Okay, now you remind me of that. Right. So, um, sure, that was very interesting. Uh, unfortunately, that, in- that got sort of wiped off of Instagram. So he got wiped off of Instagram. Right. Um, but um, what do you think about that? Does he deserve to be wiped off of Instagram? Uh, I think it's um, very complex. I mean, um, I know that, you know, there's a big outcry against censorship. And, and, you know, I personally, my preference would be that these people stayed. But I mean, sometimes I have to ask myself, do I really, you know, I, I mean, I have to be honest, I'm kind of glad that Donald Trump was taken off of Twitter. I felt that he was causing like a huge amount of damage to people and, and to their psych- psyches, including myself, like just reading those horrible things every day. And, you know, these are private companies. And so it's kind of like if you own a private bar and somebody comes in every day, like screaming at the top of his lungs, and all these other people start following him and like, you know, you ultimately you might have to force that person, you know, not to come anymore. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I feel that, that it's, we're, 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 you know, sort of negotiating a very delicate thing here. Um, because like, okay, so I under, I could understand Trump, but once you open a, you can, you know, shut up the president of a country, then you can shut up like any other small person who doesn't well, I, even have I any mean, power. I mean, but I mean the, but as I said, if these were, you know, public trusts, it would, it would be a different, we have to think about them differently because they're private companies, you know, it's, it's, it's just extremely complex. I mean, and I have read like, um, there's like an article in the Atlantic Monthly that actually, you know, China does all this stuff, you know, all the censorship through the government, but we're actually learning to do the same thing using these private companies, which I, I really don't think is, is, is good or healthy. But I, I also, um, you know, sometimes people are really purveying bad information. I, I don't think that's the case with RFK. I think he's very complicated. I also wrote a very close review on my Substack blog of his book uh, on Anthony Fauci. Mm-hmm. And, um, what I, and I got a lot out of that book in terms of understanding um, what happens, you know, in terms of the coronavirus and, and the vaccines and also like how... Um, there was like all of these kind of uh, meetups uh, over years where the military and the governments and companies had prepared for this type of virus and kind of had a playbook of what they would do. And that included, you know, censorship and, you know, denouncing anti-vaxxers and really a lot of it like point by point. Uh, so, so that was kind of upsetting to discover. And, and then also um, Kennedy points out that uh, essentially, the you know the military in the U.S. had wanted to keep doing work on bioweapons, but it was made illegal through like a, it was a Geneva Convention or another convention. So then they were able to kind of um, do it through gain-of-function research through the National Institute of Health. 
So the, the, you know, the, the coronavirus, I believe, was engineered in a lab. And it looks like you know, both the US and the Chinese governments were supporting this research. And it was some kind of weird, like edgy, like bioweapons research. And they've totally refused to admit to that. You know, so that's terrifying. I mean, it's a mess. Um, so I think, you know, Kennedy has been useful in opening up a lot of questions. But when I interviewed him, I was kind of um, surprised because he is against, you know, he was really against like all vaccines. And he believes that like, you know, polio and smallpox vaccines, it was really more that hygiene had gotten better and uh, medicine, other types of preventive medicine had gotten better, sanitation had gotten better, and the vaccines really didn't contribute very much. I mean, as far as I understand that, I'm still of the opinion that, that these were like medical marvels that saved like millions of lives and so on. So I, I was a little surprised by how dogmatic he was, but this is like um, the difficulty of our time, right? Because we, we, you know, and everything like leads us to become more extreme. Like we have an idea or a feeling, then we find the information that supports that idea or that feeling that carries us like further and further in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing how messed up that is. You know? mm -hmm. What about Russell Brand? Have you interviewed him or has he only interviewed you? What's your relationship with him? I did interview him. Um, I had a talk show on Gaia years ago. Oh, cool. What um, was it called? It was called Mind Shift. Okay. Cool. Um, and then we did a number of things together. I mean, he um, took a lot from my work. He wrote a book called Revolution, where he has a few chapters um, kind of, um, you know, talking about how my, because I guess I sort of synthesized like the ecological, the political, and the, and the spiritual, or the mystical in a way that was like new for him. And, um, you know, he still cites like my posts. We did, recently we did a thing for Under the Skin. And generally, I'm really supportive, and I think he's amazing, and he's an incredible showman, and it's like, you can watch week by week, the, the numbers on his YouTube are, are exploding. Uh, I've, I've been very um, uneasy about the way he's approached the uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, war. Um, I feel that he's gotten a little bit trapped in a ideological left-wing perspective, where he's only reading like magazines like you know, and I like these magazines, like the Jacobin and the Intercept and so on. Whereas I, I really do kind of feel that this is like a different situation where it is kind of like a good versus evil thing where, you know, you have a Putin who's the running a, you know, military dictatorship, autocracy. Whereas if Russell lived in Russia now, you know, he would be killed for what he was saying, you know, generally for what he, for what he was talking about. So, and, the, and they're trying to stomp out a country that was moving in the in the direction of liberal democracy and wanted to embrace kind of Western values. And they seem to be now, we're learning, you know, even having like a genocidal, like they were bringing like mobile crematoriums into these cities and they had like lists. So it's like, it's really horrible on the level of like second world war horror. And I, I, I'm not really happy that, you know, leftist thinkers like, you know, their pundits like like Russell, who I, who I love and respect, are not seeing that uh, they, they're, they're trapped in their kind of anger against the liberal West and the governments and our, you know, fiascos with the military and our war crimes and so on. And that's all true. Like the Iraq war was incredibly horrendous, but we also have to take every situation as the situation that it is. And, and right now, I actually, my personal feeling is that, you know, Ukra Ukraine actually does need to, to stop Russia because he's not going to stop at Ukraine. Is that possible? What's that? Is that possible that Ukraine would beat Russia? They've been uh, kicking Russia's butt so far. No way. 
Yeah, you haven't been following? They've, I don't look at the news. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I never know what to believe, so I'd rather not. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, well, you can, but I mean, that's interesting because if you get into it, then you can actually watch all these videos, like these burning columns, or, like Russian tanks. I mean, um, but I don't know if it's true or not. I well, don't even know if that I mean, tank is a Russian or a from some I mean, other war. I mean, that's where I think you have to be really careful because it's like um, the danger in our, you know, corrupted and polluted information environment is that we become so relativistic that we can't see anything is true and then we're kind of trapped. So, you know, and I've worked for the New York Times and I've written for them like, you know, they, they do bias, but they also are rigorously fact-checked, you know, and, and, you know, the CIA has at times infiltrated them and, you know, created false stories, but that's not like always the case. I mean, I think that we, you know, it, it's, we were in a period that requires like, like a lot of discernment and you can actually look at like, like the New York, you know, the Russia is saying we didn't do these war crimes, you know, but then the, the, the Times not only found the photographs, they found the timed satellite imagery that shows how these bodies ended up in a certain place. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of evidence. And that's like, I mean, I do a lot of research and exhaust myself sometimes because you can really go down into these rabbit holes and, and make discernment, you know, for yourself. But right. I mean, in, in, in this case, it really does seem to be the case that, you know, the Russians have lost, you know, ten to twenty thousand soldiers, which is an unbelievable amount of soldiers and or more, and they've lost uh, an unbelievable amount of equipment, and they're sort of in retreat and regroup mode, um, and uh, you know, the the West doesn't want to get involved because of the threat of nuclear war, basically. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that Putin is using that threat every time uh, we try to go against him, so. You know, it's, a, it's I can understand it's a very tough situation, but um, I don't think we can allow, you know, a Hitler-like dictator to just annihilate, you know, civilian populations and other countries uh, over and over again. You know, I, so so in a way for me, this has actually been eyes opening in terms of remembering that there are, you know, values and principles in our you know, corrupt and messed up liberal democracies that, you know, are failing us in some ways and are, you know, we talked about China with the policies around the mandates and, and you know, what they have with the truckers and so on and moving more towards the sort of, you know, kind of neoliberal authoritarianism. And that sucks, but it, it's still better than autocracy or like, you know, th this type of what's happening in China and Russia, you know, in Brazil where, there's no freedom of speech, like an indigenous population can just be killed or relocated. You know, there, there's no rule of law. It's just like state power. You know, so I still think we actually more than ever have to really make these distinctions and be like, OK, like, um, you know, this is our, our thing is far from perfect, but it's like still needs to be protected and even cherished compared to having a system with no freedom of speech where you're totally under the boot of, a, you know, military government and so on. So we're bad, but there's worse. Exactly. So let's fight the worst. Well, yeah, I, so that's, I think, one of the problems. Like, we always want to separate between good and bad. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we've got bad and worse, or these, like, degrees, you know, that we have to really reckon with, in a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I hope that all occupations end, including Ukraine, Syria, Palestine, etc. You know, it's not the only one. And uh, may, you know, all countries be free to do their thing without another country coming in and saying, how they're supposed to do things, which seems to be like the case. So back to the information wars. Yeah. It seems like each one of us has to be like a full-time investigator to know what the truth is. Like we can't fully trust the corporate media. And then there's the side of 
misinformation or extreme uh, conspiracy theories you know I guess the answer you already told me you have to like do mad research but how can the normal person like myself who's busy already with a career and a full life get any grasp on what's real and what's a lie like who can we trust <laughs> yeah, really. I can't help you there. Because <laughs> I, I love checking out Russell Brand, for example, you know, yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I always hear his points and, you know, I find him like smart and articulate and, and kind of like in the middle. But of course, he's very criticizing on the media that now is coming hard on him. I, could, I can see he's getting taking it a little bit personal and kind of like defending himself a little bit extra than usual when he was just giving opinions that didn't have that uh, feeling to with it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've thought about if you could have like, you know, like, I mean, maybe blockchain, you know, could allow for some type of like social network where, you know, you would, you know, people would build trust in different areas over time and you would, you know, feel you had more reason to trust somebody. But uh, it's, um, it's a mess right now. Mm -hmm. It's a really dangerous mess, you know. Right. Well, hopefully our, our spiritual intuition grows and we can see through the lies and in, like have intuition to tell us what, what sounds right and what sounds wrong. So we're coming to the end of our interview. Yeah. Would you have some final words of wisdom to the millions and millions of viewers watching our show today? Um, um, <laughs> I guess, you know, do the work of thinking for yourself and... Um, you know, try to take, you know, more responsibility for what you can. Mm -hmm. you know. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. It was beautiful. Yeah. And thank you, the viewers of Chris Dyer's Creative Friends. Thank you for watching this week. Please like, comment, share, etc. Subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Blessings. <laughs> Woo! Next episode, my guest will be Crystal Smith. Many people stop themselves from expressing themselves out of a fear of it not being good enough or it, they don't know how to do it. And, and it's like a gap in actually like diving more deeply into their own unique expression. And so I really just encourage people to, to let go of that inner critic, to explore new ways of working and creating and to find their own style and language and let that just sort of naturally evolve. You know, the world needs us to show up with our open hearts and creative expression. And the more that we do that and share that with each other, I think the more beautiful of a world that we're going to live in. So please make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Big thanks and see you next episode. Peace.